monolithic space station is basically a barrel in space. It's a single room that allows people to survive in the vacuum. Where there's no air, there's cosmic radiation all over the place, and there's no food or water or anything. So it's a bare basics kind of setup which sticks around in orbit for a while, allows humans to survive, which is what makes it a station rather than a normal satellite, though a station is technically a satellite too, because it orbits the planet, so it's an artificial satellite of Earth, and it's differentiated from a spacecraft like a rocket or a shuttle, in that it's placed in orbit and then maybe fires little thrusters from time to time in order to avoid falling Earthside and burning up in the atmosphere, or to dodge other in-orbit things, like satellites or debris. But otherwise, it doesn't go anywhere under its own propulsion. It's put there by a rocket or some other spacecraft, and then hangs out its in-orbit real estate. And a monolithic version of a space station is the equivalent of a shed rather than a house, because it's just a hollow, pressurized space that has the essentials so a human can hang out up there and not die, at least until those essentials like air and water run out, but not much more than that. The first space stations were monolithic, and the very first space station was launched by the Soviet Union in mid-1971. This Salyut-1 station was a modified version of a monolithic frame developed by the Soviets for their military space station program, which was called ALMAS, but which intermingled with the Salyut civilian program from day one. In essence, they were developing scientific and other civilian use case space stations while also developing secretive military space stations, and they shared technology between the two. Thus, the first successful space station, the Salyut-1, was based on a military design, and then subsequent Salyut models, in particular Salyut-2, 3, and 5, were military in nature, but made to look like civilian efforts in order to conceal their true purpose, with mixed results, obviously, since the historical record now shows that they had these military use cases alongside their ostensible, public-facing, scientific purposes. Some of these early space station models, which were flung into orbit with fairly staggering regularity during the space race, especially in the early to mid-1970s, some of them worked impressively well, considering the technology and know-how they were working with at the time, and how complicated it is getting things up there in the first place, not to mention keeping people alive within the context of a vacuum. And because of all those difficulties, some of these stations failed, either during or shortly after launch, or at some point after they were placed into orbit. In general, once the resources aboard these early stations were depleted, the stations would be abandoned and then allowed to degrade in their orbits, eventually coming closer and closer to Earth, where they would someday burn up in the atmosphere. Later, monolithic space stations had multiple docking ports, which allowed them to have visitors beyond the main crew and to be resupplied while in orbit, 
Though in some cases, like with the American monolithic space station Skylab, which was launched in mid-1973 and operated by three different crews of astronauts over its not-quite-year-long lifespan, in their case, that second port existed but was never utilized. So it served as a theoretically valuable add-on, but one that was never used for its intended purpose which was to basically extend the floor plan of these relatively small space stations using additional spacecraft that could attach to them, opening up their ports and becoming modular additions to the station while docked. The Soviet Salyut 7 space station, which was placed in orbit in mid-1982, took this concept to its natural endpoint, using one of its two docks to permanently connect with a TKS resupply spacecraft, which the Soviets used to top up their air, food, water, and the like on their space stations, beginning in the late 1960s. This supply craft attached to the space station like it normally would when doing a supply mission, but then it was just locked into place, which allowed the Soviets to test out the concept of a modular space station operation, which in turn led to the testing of purpose-made heavy Cosmos modules, which were variants of that supply tug craft that were optimized for the Almas military space station program, but then repurposed for the, again, similar to the point of basically being interchangeable, Salyut civilian space station program. And that optimization allowed them to basically be hooked into place permanently, rather than hooking up, resupplying, and then leaving. The success of this experimentation ultimately led to the development and 1986 deployment of the Mir space station, which the Soviets operated until the Soviet Union fell, the operation of which was then taken over by the new Russian government until 1996. The Mir space station was massive compared to anything else that had ever been launched into space, and it was able to achieve this impressive bulk because it was launched in pieces and then put together in orbit, using interconnected modules like they'd tried out with those earlier craft. The concept of the International Space Station and the shape and aesthetics of it as a multi-limbed satellite of sorts that has been continuously occupied by humans for decades and expanded upon over the same period owes a large debt to the Mir and to the monolithic space stations that came before, as much of what we learned about how to build and operate such things stemmed from those early one-room shed-in-space years of basically tossing some food and water and air into a barrel and chucking that barrel into orbit and seeing if humans could survive under such conditions, and if so, how we might make such spaces more habitable and useful for future vacuum-exploring human beings. What I'd like to talk about today are some next steps that are being planned beyond the International Space Station, when those next steps might occur, and what they might look like. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from IEEE Spectrum, and it's entitled The Race for the Next-Gen Space Station. Some quick contemporary context to set the stage for the topic of this piece. 
At the moment, as of the early days of 2022, there are two functional operational space stations in orbit around Earth. The first is the International Space Station, the ISS, which has been up there since 1998 and consists of two main segments, one launched and operated by Russia and one launched and operated by the United States. The Russian component has six main modules, and these were originally meant to be a Russia-only space station called Mir-2, which was canceled. And the U.S. segment, which is actually more of an international segment, as a lot of it was funded and built and launched and continues to be maintained by the U.S., but the European, Canadian, and Japanese space agencies all played and continue to play major roles in funding, building, launching, and operating a great deal of what's included in the 11 modules that make up this segment of the ISS. There's another planned ISS segment, the Axiom Orbital segment, which is meant to launch and be attached to the other existing segments sometime in the 2020s, and I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The other currently in-orbit, functional, and operating space station, as of early 2022 though, is the Chinese Tiangong Space Station, which got its first module in place in April of 2021, and which got its first crew in June the same year. As of the day I'm recording this, the Tiangong Space Station consists of only one module, but the Chinese space program intends to finish it up, adding two more modules by the end of 2022. This space station is predicated on what the Chinese space program learned launching two earlier monolithic space stations, the Tiangong 1 and 2, in late 2011 and late 2016, respectively. They originally planned to launch another monolithic station, the Tiangong 3, but canceled that project in order to get an earlier start on this upgraded modular model. These two modular space stations, then, are the only operating stations in orbit as of right now, and they're both used for a variety of purposes, most of which orient around research, ranging from figuring out how to build better space-related sealants and mechanical arms and things like that, to doing experiments related to biology, checking to see what plants grow in zero gravity, what effects a pressurized atmosphere has on fetal development of various animals. There's also a fair bit of espionage and reconnaissance potential with these sorts of projects, and though officially nothing like that happens aboard the ISS, it's a fair bet that some does manage to sneak through the bureaucracy, potentially by everyone involved, and it's a near certainty that the Chinese are doing quite a lot of military-related things aboard their station. They're not even really trying to hide it, actually, as the Chinese military is integrated with their space program more thoroughly than is the case in most other currently spacefaring nations. Now that's the state of play today, at the very beginning of 2022. But a lot of this will almost certainly have changed substantially by 2030, just eight years from now. Although it was originally intended to cease operation in 2024 due to a significant number of stress fractures that are causing slow leaks and other bits of deteriorating technology and infrastructure, the ISS has recently had its lifespan extended to 2030 
and what that will mean in terms of upkeep and upgrades isn't yet clear, but we do know a new module called Axiom Station, which I mentioned earlier, is scheduled to attach to the existing ISS structure sometime in 2024. And this new module is being built so that when the ISS is eventually retired, it can disconnect and separate from that larger retired structure and continue to operate solo, becoming its own new modular space station, which can then be built out with three additional modules in 2025, 2026, and 2027. This new module is at this point at least unique in that it is being planned and developed as a private effort by a startup company focused on research and manufacturing. They've already signed a contract back in 2020 to design and build at least one new module for the ISS. And the interiors have been designed so that they're fairly plush and fancy. This is meant to be a business effort, and that means allowing corporations to do in-orbit research within this module, but also having room for space tourists. Despite all the lovely mock-ups and proof-of-concepts they've developed, though, there's some speculation that this module might not be far enough along to hit its planned 2024 launch date. The U.S. Office of Inspector General has said it'll be a challenge to get this thing off the ground and installed even by 2030, and that's if they can get everything seemingly ready by 2025. In other words, the regulators in this space who decide who can launch what and connect with what in orbit are saying that they are not optimistic about this startup's ability to meet its currently stated goals. So we'll see if this happens when they want it to happen and if it misses that planned deadline, if it then happens at all, as missed deadlines in this industry can often result in completely canceled projects because the technology utilized and regulations to which they're adhering might be out of date by the time they get all their ducks in a row. NASA has also signed agreements with three U.S.-based companies to develop new space stations, divvying out about $415.6 million between Blue Origin, NanoRax, and Northrop Grumman to basically perpetuate a U.S. presence in low Earth orbit even after the International Space Station is no longer operational. Blue Origin is an aerospace company founded and owned by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, and they've partnered with another aerospace company, Sierra Nevada, which has existing national security contracts, which is something Blue Origin has had trouble securing thus far. They've partnered to design what Bezos has called a mixed-use business park in space. If and when completed, this project, called Orbital Reef, should be able to house 10 people, and they expect to have it operational by the second half of the 2020s. So another potential space station, built and operated by private companies, intended for mostly corporate use cases, including research and manufacturing, but also space tourism purposes. A space services company called NanoRax has partnered with Lockheed Martin, a company that does all sorts of things, but which is perhaps most known for its weaponry and aerospace efforts, it builds a lot of the weapons and vehicles used by the U.S. military, to develop a space station called StarLab, which is somewhat unique in that it's meant to be an inflatable habitat, which will be able to support four people, 
will do similar things as Orbital Reef. So a lot of research and manufacturing, backed by corporations and maybe some tourism here and there. But it's also distinct in that it's being pitched as a monolithic inflatable space station. So it's not meant to be modular, and the idea seems to be that if this one does well, they can make more of them. So it's a one-and-done sort of effort, rather than requiring multiple launches to complete over the course of years. And the Free Flyer space station, being developed by aerospace and arms manufacturer Northrop Grumman, like Lockheed Martin, this is a company perhaps best known for making military hardware, used by the U.S. and other militaries, seems to have been pitched as a sort of ISS-2, in that it will be cobbled together using existing technologies and will be a testbed for stuff that they're building for NASA and other space agencies and companies. So instead of pitching something novel or distinct or revolutionary, they've opted to say, basically, we will use off-the-shelf gear that we know works and periodically try out new hardware that we can then provide for you later for use in other projects that you want to fund. And in the meantime, this station will work. And it will work a lot like the current ISS in that it will be modular, can be built out and iterated over time, and can be used for research and manufacturing or whatever else. It's notable in some ways that NASA chose to fund these three fairly conservative efforts for their next step U.S. government-affiliated projects in low Earth orbit, while the elephant in the space industry room, SpaceX, is going in a completely different direction. Rather than investing in space stations, which again are basically bits of barrel-shaped real estate orbiting around the planet, in some cases connected to each other to make bigger pieces of real estate, SpaceX is doubling down on their Starship concept, which is a reusable spacecraft that's absolutely massive compared to other previous modules and shuttles. The craft alone, without its rockets, is 160 feet tall and contains more than 100 times the usable space for people and or cargo compared to the crew modules used during the Apollo missions and which, because of that size and the craft's reusability, can also be repurposed in situ as a space station or a habitat on the moon or Mars or other planets. The grand idea is that each starship can be kitted out for any of these purposes. It's like a motorhome in space. You can park it in orbit and use it as a space station and optimize it for that purpose. But then if you ever decide you want to move it someplace else, you could attach some rockets to it, hit a button, and send it elsewhere, setting it up as a space station around the moon, or sending it on a long-term journey to some other planet, or even some other solar system, theoretically. SpaceX has seen a lot of failure so far with their Starship testing. And these Goliath vehicles are expensive to make and they explode pretty spectacularly when they fail. But they went through the same trial and error process with their now industry standard, consistently reliable and comparably quite inexpensive reusable rockets as well. So there's a chance that all these space stations being developed in the conventional way will be outdated by the time they're launched and put into service. 
It may seem quaint that these stations just sit there, rather than offering the versatility and far better economics, potentially, of the reusable, repurposable starship. And whatever competitors inevitably arise to the starship using a similar business model and approach. The timing on using a starship for space station purposes is anyone's guess, as it's mostly speculative at this moment. There are plans to use a starship to return humans to the moon as part of NASA's Artemis program by 2025, but we'll see. These programs have a way of sprawling and being pushed back by future presidential administrations. And it may be that even if Starship is successful with the Artemis mission, SpaceX will become busy and so focused on travel of that kind that they end up pushing back their own, still theoretical, space station-related efforts and experimentation. So although Starship could end up being an incredible competitor in the space station space, it may be a while before that happens, and before we know if it ends up being a good idea the way it seems like it could be. Aside from the private efforts set to take off sometime before 2030, there are also several national efforts on the docket, including a Russian low-Earth orbit space station intended to replace their own presence on the ISS whenever it disappears, and that is tentatively set for 2025, though with a lot of wiggle room, as their agency tends to push these sorts of things back almost as frequently as NASA does. And a space station that India has indicated it intends to build and launch, putting it into operation perhaps in 2030, though they have less of a history with this sort of thing. So it's impossible to know how likely they are to hit even that rough target. The Indonesian space program has suggested it may launch a space station sometime between 2030 and 2035, though details are very sparse on that at the moment. And there are several lunar space stations orbiting the moon instead of Earth planned for this decade, with the Lunar Gateway, an initially two-module lunar space station, which can be expanded with more modules in the future, in development by the U.S., European, Canadian, and Japanese space agencies for a late 2024 launch, and another lunar space station planned by the Russian space agency for some time after 2030, though that project seems to be more aspirational than practical at the moment, and it lacks much in the way of publicly available details, so we'll see. Between the enormous number of satellite launches, the human-hauling rockets, the reusability of elements in space exploration, the at times quite fascinating alternative launch techniques that are being tried out right now, and the large number of space stations that are planned for the next decade, the 2020s should be an interesting time for space, for the research that we're able to do in space, for potential innovations in various fields, many of which tend to work their way back down to Earth as well. And it should be an interesting moment for the evolution of our systems and processes and regulations and laws related to operating and living in space. book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Reason for the Darkness of the Night 
Edgar Allan Poe and The Forging of American Science by John Tresh. Like many people, I've always enjoyed Edgar Allan Poe's work, the stuff that I'd come across at least, but I did not realize that he had such a fascinating backstory and that so much of his work actually oriented around nonfiction topics, including work that he produced for his own publications and in some cases some petty rivalries, and this book gets into that. A quick snippet from the summary that the publishers have provided for this, I think, sums up the topics covered pretty well. Quote, In The Reason for the Darkness of the Night, John Tresh offers a bold new biography of a writer whose short, tortured life continues to fascinate, shining a spotlight on an era when the lines separating entertainment, speculation, and scientific inquiry were blurred. Tresh reveals Poe's obsession with science and lifelong ambition to advance and question human knowledge. Even as he composed dazzling works of fiction, he remained an avid and often combative commentator on new discoveries, publishing, and hustling in literary scenes that also hosted the era's most prominent scientists, semi-scientists, and pseudo-intellectual rogues." End quote. It is, in fact, one of those interesting biographies that's fascinating because of the person who's being biographized, but perhaps even more so because of the moment in time and location in which that person is operating. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Reason for the Darkness in the Night by John Tresh. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of all my projects, including written and audio projects, among others, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.